0: Hello and welcome to this Herbert Smith Freehills podcast, which is the ninth and final in our series to mark the launch of the second edition of our textbook, Class Actions in England and Wales, which was published last autumn by Sweet and Maxwell. I'm Maura McIntosh and I'm a professional support consultant in the disputes team at Herbert Smith Freehills and one of the general editors of the textbook. I have with me today Alan Watts, a partner in our disputes team in London and co-head of our Class Actions practice, and Greg Rowan, also a disputes partner and a general editor of the textbook. In this podcast, we'll look at where class actions are now in England and Wales and how we see things developing in the next few years. So Alan, I'll start with you. It's almost a year since we launched the second edition and in the preface to the first edition back in 2018, we said class action litigation had become increasingly prominent in this jurisdiction and in the second edition last year we said that trend had continued unabated in the intervening years. Can you just comment on how things have been progressing since then?
1: I think the numbers of class actions we're seeing have continued to ramp up. It's certainly a very significant part of our practice in a way that simply wasn't the case 10 years ago, and it seems to be increasing all the time. It's hard to put numbers on it, apart from the competition claims in the Competition Appeal Tribunal, where there's a specific procedural mechanism that has to be used so it's relatively easy to track the numbers. Outside that context, class actions can be pursued either with or without a group litigation order being made. And increasingly, the court is simply using its case management powers to manage these actions without a formal GLO. So it's difficult to tie down precisely how many cases there are. There have been various reports that say class actions have increased by X percent or Y percent. And I think you have to take some of the figures with a pinch of salt, but certainly there's a continued upward trend.
0: And what do you think is driving the trend?
1: There are various factors, but I think it has a lot to do with claimant firms and litigation funders who have been driving these cases more and more over the years. They're all competing to find the next case and recruit claimants to it. Assuming, of course, they need to recruit claimants rather than being able to pursue an opt-out claim.
0: Thanks. Yes, uh, we'll, we'll come back to the question of litigation funding, which, of course, has been a big issue in light of the Supreme Court's decision in the Packer case back in July. But Greg, first, can I ask you what sorts of areas have been particularly important for class actions and where you expect to see further growth?
2: Sure. Thanks, Maura. And hello, everyone. Alan has already mentioned competition claims where we've seen really very significant growth in the number of cases and and of course those cases are particularly attractive to claimants and funders because they can be pursued on an opt-out basis subject to the approval of the CAT and most of the cases that have been certified to date have been on an opt-out basis. That removes a lot of the initial costs since there's no need to spend money on advertising and persuading claimants to sign up, and it means the class is likely to be or can be much larger. Uh, That does depend, of course, on the particular case and and how the class is defined. Um, To illustrate that, and as many of our listeners will be aware, in one of the most high profile cases, Merix and MasterCard, the class is said to be around 42 million people, and the principal claim is estimated at around seven billion pounds.
0: I've heard speculation that competition class actions may be starting to level off slightly from the large numbers of new applications for collective proceedings orders that we saw in 2021 and 2022. Although the Cap website doesn't show new cases until defendants have acknowledged service, so we don't have precise figures for the past few months. But why do you think the curve may be flattening if, if that's the case? And do you think it means these claims are becoming less attractive?
2: No, I certainly don't think it means the claims are less attractive. Um, To to my mind, there are a couple of factors at play here. Um, First, you have to remember that there were lots of claims in 2021 and 2022. Uh, There'd been a bit of a a backlog whilst we were waiting for the Supreme Court decision in Merricks to clarify the test for certification. That came down in in December 2020 and um, set a relatively low bar, as our, our listeners will be aware. So there was a bit of a flurry of claims that had been waiting in the wings. And then I think the other major factor is that with all of these claims making their way through the system, I think that the claimant firms and the funders are really pausing to take stock and see how some of these cases start to play out in terms of the substantive issues. Um, Most obviously that includes, for example, um, some of the novel questions around how the cat is going to calculate and award damages in opt-out actions. Another interesting question is how successfully funders are going to be able to recover their their fees from the undistributed damages pot, which is the mechanism for funders getting paid in these cases. So, look, I don't think it signals a drop in enthusiasm for bringing the cases, which remain attractive, assuming, of course, that the funding issues are sorted out. Which, as you said, we can come back to.
0: Thanks for that. So, apart from competition, then, what other areas do do you expect to grow?
2: Well, we're continuing to see large numbers of shareholder claims both brought and threatened, particularly under Section 90A of the Financial Services and Markets Act, FUSMA. Essentially, Section 90A allows shareholders to sue issuers for losses that arise from false or misleading statements and information that's been published to the market. Um, It's certainly right to recognise, I think, that there still haven't been many of these cases, many shareholder class actions that have made it all the way to trial. And of course, last year, 2022, uh, saw a pretty significant slowdown in in capital markets that was caused by a range of factors, um, uncertainty in global markets, the war in Ukraine, and the global sanctions that targeted Russian banks, companies and individuals. But despite that, the turmoil in share prices may give rise to increased securities litigation in the short term. Um, it's, it's worth noting that the last time we saw this sort of uncertainty was probably the global financial crisis. And, and that gave rise to the first and still actually the largest securities class action in the UK. Um, ESG related claims are also an area that we expect to grow both in the shareholder and the investor space. Um, where there may, for example, be allegations of greenwashing based on what you might call um, overly optimistic statements made by companies about their environmental credentials. Um, There are also claims brought as what we call what we refer to as transnational torts and typically claims brought against UK based parent companies founded on alleged environmental or human rights failings by subsidiary companies abroad and the cases in 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 recent years have demonstrated really how difficult it is to strike these claims out at an early stage um, on the basis that the parent company didn't owe a duty of care to the claimants the courts generally see that as a fact dependent question that needs to be determined at trial and of course these cases can be very expensive to fight and and reputationally damaging so there's quite a strong incentive to settle or there can be at least
0: Yes, I can see that. Alan, are there any other areas you'd like to mention?
1: Product liability is still an important area, including because of the so-called diesel gate litigation, which everyone will be aware of. Not least due to the numerous emails and WhatsApp messages they'll be receiving to ask if they've ever owned a diesel car so that they can be recruited to the relevant claim. I think the number of claims has now been brought against numerous manufacturers. I'm aware of at least 10 or 11 GLO applications in the English courts and no doubt there will be more as claimants seem to be casting the net pretty widely in terms of car manufacturers. So it'll be interesting to see how the courts will manage all these large and complex cases.
0: What about data claims? Uh, Of course they were a very hot topic leading up to the Lloyd and Google decision in November 2021 that I think listeners will be familiar with. But just as a reminder, in that case, the Supreme Court refused to allow the claim to proceed as an opt-out representative action on behalf of some 4 million UK iPhone users because the claimant couldn't establish that those represented all had the the same interest in the claim. Uh, The claimants had tried to get around that same interest requirement by basing the claim on the lowest common denominator position uh, rather than relying on individual circumstances of the claimants. But the Supreme Court wasn't convinced and and didn't allow the claim to proceed. Did that decision kill the appetite for these sorts of cases?
1: It certainly didn't increase the appetite as data cases are a paradigm example of the type of claim that's difficult to get off the ground since each individual's loss will tend to be small and it may be difficult to establish loss at all. In many cases, since the Supreme Court has confirmed that there has to be some sort of loss separate from the mere loss of control or unlawful processing of data. There has been an attempt in this prismol versus Google case to bring a representative action for misuse of private information, but that was knocked back for similar reasons to the Lloyd versus Google case. Though, in principle, damages are available for the loss of control of data in MPI cases, so it may be possible to bring a representative action in the right case, perhaps if the data is so sensitive that even on the lowest common denominator basis, it's obvious that there's an entitlement to damages. And the claimant in Prisma is seeking permission to appeal, so a lot will depend on whether the Court of Appeal grants permission, and if so, what view it takes. But in any case, data claims are still being brought on an opt-in basis with claims management companies bundling these claims and then seeking a GLO. So, In some cases, defendants have successfully pushed back on the basis that there should be a simpler process of running some test cases so there's no need to identify large numbers of claimants at an early stage and potentially not at any stage if the defendants can manage to see off the test cases.
0: What about the scope for other cases to be brought on an opt-out basis using the representative action procedure? Uh, Greg, do you want to comment on that?
2: Yeah, sure. Those who've listened to other episodes of this podcast might be familiar with the Commission Recovery and Marks and Clark case, which we've discussed previously. In that case, Mr Justice Knowles took what's arguably a much more liberal approach to when a representative action can be brought That was in the context of claims for secret commissions paid in respect of client referrals to an IP renewal services provider. And there the judge held that claims could be brought as a representative action seemingly on the basis that there was no actual conflict of interest between the claimants. And that was despite obvious differences between their claims in terms of pretty fundamental things like quantum limitation and knowledge. Um, you might think that they will be fatal to establishing the same interest requirement in the light of the Lloyd and um, Prismal cases. Um, Both of those cases proceeded from the premise that um, the requirement would only be met if the claims could be established based on the lowest common denominator approach. Um, We understand that the appeal against that decision is due to be heard by the Court of Appeal in November, the 21st of November, So, we'll have to see what the court makes of it. Um, Certainly, I think that if the court um, upholds the decision, then it could pave the way for lots of other attempts to bring opt-out claims using the procedure. And in fact, I'm aware of a few cases where a claimant is seeking to bring a shareholder action as a representative action, and there's a strikeout application waiting to be heard. But it's clearly an important area to watch, since a more liberal approach to representative actions could mean a real uptick in claims.
0: What about the bifurcated approach the Supreme Court talked about in Lloyd and Google for cases where individual circumstances vary? I think the idea was that the genuinely common issues could be dealt with on an opt-out basis using a representative action. Uh, For example, obtain a declaration that a defendant was in breach of relevant obligations and then any individual issues could be litigated separately. Have have we seen any appetite for claims to be brought on that basis?
2: Uh, not really so far, Maura. Uh, the, the problem, I think, with the bifurcated approach is how the first stage, so to establish liability, can be funded since it doesn't result in any pot of damages for the funder to take a share of. Uh, it, it may be that funders are happy to pile in at the second stage once liability is established, if the potential damages per claimant are great enough, but that really begs the question as to who's going to pay to establish liability. I should say that even if the courts do take a more liberal approach to representative actions so that funders start investing in more of these claims, there's an open question as to whether a funder can be paid out of damages before they're distributed to class members. In the Marks and Clark decision, Mr Justice Knowles suggested, in in fairness somewhat tentatively, That the court might be able to find a way to allow that without the need for class members to consent. Um, Similar, if you like, to the court's jurisdiction to allow an insolvency practitioner to be paid out of assets that are recovered. Um, But he said that the court didn't have to grapple with the issue at that stage. And in Lloyd and Google, this was described as a question of considerable difficulty. So funders could support these cases and then find um, that there's no way for them to receive the cut of damages they were expecting.
0: Very interesting. That brings us also neatly back to the question of funding, which is crucial for any class action. Now, some of these cases may be funded by solicitors acting on no-win, no-fee retainers, and a few may be self-funded by claimants. But of course, the vast majority of class actions rely on third-party litigation funders, which is why the PACAR decision was so dramatic. Alan, can you tell us about that?
1: Sure. This was a decision in the Trucks Litigation in the Competition Appeal Tribunal. The question was whether third-party litigation funding agreements were damages-based agreements, or DBAs, and therefore had to comply with the applicable regulations, which are the 2013 DBA regulations. It was common ground that litigation funding agreements in that case did not comply, and therefore, if they were DBAs, they were unenforceable. The Supreme Court held that the agreements were DBAs, essentially because of an accident of drafting. I don't think anyone has suggested that when DBAs were introduced and regulated, Parliament intended that they should include agreements with litigation funders. But nonetheless, it held that that was the result as a matter of statutory interpretation because of the way the definition in the relevant legislation cross-referred to a definition from an older statute and the fact that in the Supreme Court's judgment, the relevant term had to mean the same thing in both contexts. The upshot of the Supreme Court's decision is that pretty much all third-party litigation funding agreements currently in existence, or at least those that were in existence when the decision was handed down on the 26th of July, are likely to be unenforceable, since those in the funding market didn't think funding agreements were DBAs and therefore they didn't make any efforts to comply with the rather unclear and complex regulations that apply to such agreements.
0: So if litigation funding agreements are unenforceable, does that mean all funded claims will fall over as a result of the decision?
1: No, it doesn't go that far. And certainly funders have been keen to talk down the extent to which this causes problems for them. But they have been busy trying to renegotiate funding agreements in ongoing matters to try and get round the decision, either by trying to ensure the agreement falls outside the definition of a DBA, possibly by moving to just the multiple of funding rather than taking a share of the damages. Though so there are arguments both ways as to whether that will do it. Or alternatively, by accepting that funding agreement is a DBA and making sure it's compliant with the relevant regulations, which probably means the funder agreeing that they can never receive more than 50% of the damages, including VAT, rather than also having what they typically agree now, which is an underpinning multiple of the funding committed, which kicks in to protect them if the damages are lower than anticipated. The biggest problem is in competition claims in the CAT, and particularly opt-out claims in the CAT, since DBAs are prohibited in that context. So the funders' only option for those cases is to try and make sure they avoid the agreement being a DBA at all. There was a recent hearing on the amended funding agreements in one of those cases, where the defendants are arguing that the agreements are still DBAs, even though they are based primarily on a multiple of damages rather than a percentage of recoveries. One of the arguments being run is that they still fall foul of the rules because the funder's return is necessarily linked to the amount recovered in the action, as the funder can only be paid out of recoveries. So we should soon see what the cap makes of that argument. But conversely, there was a very recent decision on 20th of October where the High Court held that there was a serious issue to be tried as to whether a funding agreement might be enforceable even where it provided for payment of both a multiple and a percentage of damages on the basis of a court of appeal decision which held by a majority and in a very different context that a DBA is not necessarily the whole agreement, but only that part that provides for a payment out of recoveries. In other words, the argument is that the aspect of the funding agreement which provides for a multiple can survive, even if the percentage payment is unenforceable. So there are lots of arguments still to be tested. Do
0: you think this case will affect funders' appetite to fund cases in this jurisdiction more generally?
1: I don't think it will have a huge impact. Funders have a lot of money to invest in claims and class actions are obviously attractive because they tend to be large. And so they can invest significant amounts in one action and take advantage of the economies of scale. And England and Wales is still an attractive jurisdiction for various sorts of class action. But it may mean funders are even more careful as to the cases they invest in. It's also interesting that there have already been indications in the legal press that some claimants in concluded cases are thinking about whether they really need to pay out a share of their damages if the funding agreement is unenforceable. I expect we may see cases that go further and seek repayment of damages already paid out to funders under such agreements. So we'll see how those play out.
0: Thanks. Yes, uh, that will be interesting. Uh, Greg, coming back to you, I just want to touch briefly on the position in the EU in light of the representative actions directive that I understand member states were supposed to implement by June this year. Can you tell us about that just briefly?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, The directive requires member states to have in place at least one procedural mechanism to allow consumers to seek collective redress for losses that have suffered from breaches of certain EU laws. Um, Only so-called qualified entities designated for that purpose by member states can bring the claims on behalf of consumers, and the member states can choose whether claims will be allowed on an opt-out basis. I gather that the picture is pretty mixed in terms of implementation so far. Um, There are a, a number of member states that still have to pass the necessary legislation, And as I I said, it only relates to consumer claims. So I don't think it's going to have a big impact on litigation here in England and Wales. Or, Or differently put, it's unlikely to draw claims away from the English courts to any real extent. But certainly it's an interesting development and it's in line with the general trend towards an increase in class actions as part of the litigation landscape internationally. The other point worth making is that the regulation introduces minimum standards. Uh, It doesn't mean that member states can't go further with the mechanisms they introduce, and there are some jurisdictions that seem to be um, ahead of the game from a claimant perspective anyway. Um, One clear example of that is the Netherlands, which seems to be a real area of interest for claimant firms and litigation funders.
0: Interesting, thanks. Finally, Alan, Back to you for a bit of crystal ballgazing, particularly with the UK general election coming up next year. Now, I'm not asking for your political predictions, but do you think that that might have any impact in terms of changes in the current picture for class actions in England and Wales?
1: Well, I don't think we're likely to see anything about class actions in any of the party's election manifestos, certainly. But I think it's fair to say that if there were to be a change of government, it might be consistent with Labour policy to expand mechanisms that are seen as leading to increased access to justice for consumers. So it's not impossible that we could see developments in the coming years, but that's effectively speculation on speculation, so don't hold me to it.
0: Thanks. That brings us to the end of our podcast and to the end of this series. I'd like to say thank you to our speakers and to all of you who've listened to this episode and hopefully some of the other episodes in the series. We hope they've been helpful.